Now, last week we looked at how John's Gospel starts off kind of very similar to Genesis 1-1. However, in John's Gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John sets this up and he's saying, Look, now that we're in this New Testament times, although I don't know if he would have exactly called it quite that, but you know, he, 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 was, he was getting there, he understood that at this point, that things have changed. Things certainly changed with Jesus Christ. It's as if it was a new beginning, quite literally. You know, just spiritually speaking, everything was going to be changing. And this morning, we're going to kind of continue this this thought a little bit more, but into something very specific. Because if you keep looking in John chapter 1, verse 14, one of my favorite passages from this chapter, it tells us, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. When you look at this, it it starts talking about how, uh, of course, this this Word that became flesh, that is Jesus Christ. Pretty much everybody does kind of agree with that and they follow that and they see that's what John's talking about. Here, this Word, it is Jesus Christ. This Word who was uh, in the very beginning and was with God and was God. We also see in this verse, verse 14, that he says, we have seen his glory. Now, there's a few different times in the Old Testament in which the glory of God shows itself. But oftentimes, you see the glory of God is is surrounding the temple and also the tabernacle. That was kind of a big deal because, you know, once... Once the tabernacle was set up, it was the place where God was going to dwell. And, and you saw that glory enter into the, the tabernacle. And whenever they built the temple and kind of transferred over everything from the tabernacle over into the temple, we see the glory of the Lord fills it again. In fact, it fills it so much that they weren't able to enter in for quite some time just because the glory was just so great of that glory of God. So we see language that's, that's kind of similar already to temple. But I, I want to share with you something that I think is even more important and so wonderful to see about this. When you look at this phrase that, that this word, this Jesus Christ, he made his dwelling among us. When you look at the term for dwelling, I, I think you find out something pretty interesting about that word. When you look it up in, in Strong's uh, Greek Dictionary, you know, if you want to look up the English words of things, you know, you probably go to Webster's. Well, if you want to look up what the Greek says or what the Hebrew says, you can go to Strong's Concordance. That's one place at least you can go to. And here, when you look at, at this word that is translated as dwelling, you find out that the first thing that's mentioned is it's to tent or to encamp. You know, this is kind of like if you were to go camping, I guess you'd kind of use this word and say, well, this is what I'm going to go do, you know, this weekend or something like that. But also, if you look down a little bit farther, you see one of the definitions that it says is to reside as God did in the tabernacle of old. You know, it kind of has this, this idea about a tabernacle here. So this dwelling is kind of like this tent, this tabernacle and all. So we already see a couple different connections to this word that John is talking about and the temple. Now, I know that in, in this day and age, you know, it's like, well, well, what really is a temple? You know, because the temple is not the same thing that a church building is. You know, this church building is great. It's wonderful. It's been very useful to us now for several years. I don't know if you've really kind of thought about that, but we've been in this church building now for a few years, and it's great. It's wonderful. It provides us all to be able to come here. We have wonderful lights to be able to see. We have uh, good acoustics and everything, so it's you know nice padded pews and stuff. It's, it's wonderful for us to come together and to worship God. However, 
This is not the same thing as the temple. The temple was different. The temple was set up by God to be the place where he was going to make his dwelling here on earth. Things are a little different here now. So the, the idea of a temple, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't seem to mean kind of as much to us in many ways. Um, at least it's not connected to that same location like what it was to the Jews. But during like John's day, for him to use some of this language, you, know, you start realizing, oh, so with this word that in the beginning, yeah, things are changing and yeah, we see new creation, but now we also see something happening with the temple too. The temple meaning is starting to change. The time that they lived in the New Testament, yeah, there was the temple in which Jews would go to worship. But you know, other religions had their own temples as well in which you would go and you would worship uh, different idols and different gods. And it, I mean, other people would do that, of course, not Christians. But that was the world in which they lived. Our world, it's a little different. We don't know as much about temples. We don't really have temples everywhere around here and all. But that was very important to them, the, what the temple stood for and how God lived there. Well, I want to share with you how Jesus kind of changes our mindset about what a temple even is. And yeah, it was part of what that video was talking about. But here we look at John's gospel and we see in chapter two, there's this encounter that Jesus has in the temple. The first time that he goes to the temple in John's gospel, this is what happens. Verses 13 through 25 of John two. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about, uh, spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So this is Jesus's first encounter in John's gospel with the temple. And I think it's so important for us to look at this and see, well, what actually happened there? You know, what happened in this encounter? Because, you know, if you're not careful with it, with that reading that, you know, sometimes you get this idea that that Jesus was like some crazy man who just kind of comes into the temple and just starts just throwing a temper tantrum. Is that what's going on? No, I think it's a lot more than that, a, a lot more meaningful than that. But, you know, oftentimes that's what people kind of think of this encounter. But I believe it's a whole lot more because I think that what we do see him doing is he is driving out those people who are hindering worship. Now, I don't see anything within the, the Bible that tells us that he was driving out the people who were worshiping. No, no, no. It says that he was driving out those people who were in the temple courts. 
Um, it would be similar, though not exactly, but it's kind of similar to um, kind of that little that, that room that we've got right back in there. You know, after you enter into the church building and then you come into the auditorium, well, you know, this is where we worship. But yet, if if people were were buying and selling stuff and everything in that room, you know, the foyer out there, and if they were uh, like being really loud and disruptive. Um, Okay, so what Jesus would have done then is he would have gone to those people and said, get out of here. You're messing things up. You're making it really hard for these other people to worship. But I don't think that we see any indication that Jesus is actually driving out those people who are legitimately coming to worship. No, he's driving out those people who are, who are there who are hindering worship. Because, I mean, this is supposed to be the place of worship. It's supposed to be like the big, major place on earth to worship. And... They've messed it up. They've made it really difficult for people to, to get their, their mindset around worshiping the one true and, and living God. So what happened? Well, he drove out those who were hindering worship. We see also that he had zeal for God's house. In fact, it's so extreme zeal that it says, zeal for your house will consume me. That's, that's a quotation that, that his disciples remembered in uh, verse 17 there. But zeal for your house will consume me. I think there's a lesson that we can learn from these things about kind of the type of desire that we should have for serving God and worshiping God. Because we see that Jesus drove out those people who were hindering worship. Worship was a big deal to him. We also see that he had such zeal for God's house. Is this the type of description that could be described of, of how much you care about you know, God's house and following God is that this zeal will consume you? Because that's the type of zeal that Jesus had for the temple, for the house of God. We also see another thing that, that happens here. See, he turned their focus, he, he turned their attention to God's new temple. Because in verse 19, he says, destroy this temple. And I don't know if maybe he pointed at his body or something like that whenever he said that, but he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. In verse 21, we see very plainly that the temple he was talking about was his body. And he did, you know, whenever his temple, whenever his body was destroyed, yeah, he raised it up in three days. He did that. He completely fulfilled that. And he's trying to get their focus to realize it's no longer going to be really about this nice temple that we've got and that we're worshiping in right now. No, things are going to be different. That's why we're gathered here in this church building today, because Jesus changed things. There is a new temple today. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple that... Actually, the temple's not even standing right now in Jerusalem. But we don't have to worry about traveling there in order to, to worship God. No, no, no. It's, things are a little different now. We have this new temple. Things are, are, are vastly different, and I would say also much better. But you know, not everybody likes this message. Not everybody likes to hear what Jesus was saying right here. And we see a few different responses one response that we see, it comes from the Jews, which I would say that this would be, uh, by reading this, I, I believe these are like the authority figures, the, the Jewish authorities. Um, so the Jews, they ask him this question. Well, what sign can you do to, to show us that, to prove your authority to do all this in verse 18? So they want to know, what can you really do? You know, what type of authority do you have? They're questioning his authority to be able to, to stop these things that's going on. Because to them, they think, oh, well, this is, just, this is just natural. This is the way things are supposed to go. But Jesus is telling them, no, it's not supposed to be this way. You're messing up people being able to worship God. You're hindering that. And that, that shouldn't be. We also see other responses, though. 
We see the disciples, which I would say would be his apostles. They believed. Uh, we see this kind of little statement there in verse 22 that, uh, that his disciples, they recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture. You know, they, they realized, they put it together, and they understood it. Yeah, sometimes they were a little slow at it. Let's face it, sometimes we're a little slow at piecing these things together ourselves. But whenever they realized it, then they got it, and they said, well, we believe. And they did believe. We also find out it's not just the disciples who believed. But in verse 23, we find the phrase that many people saw these things that he was doing. They saw these signs and they believed in his name. But then we also see kind of some confusing statements in verses 24 and 25. That's uh, I believe John included these to, to hint at when you're reading John's gospel, you see so many people start to believe in all. But you always realize, eh, yes, people believed. But some of those same people who might have believed at some point, they still did turn their back on Jesus whenever it was an important time. And that's why he was saying that he didn't entrust himself to them, that he knew all people. You know, he knew what was going to happen. I mean, let's face it, as you keep reading the, the gospel, you find out that eventually he's going to be crucified. Well, it's not exactly these people who are like, oh, well, we've seen all these signs and well, OK, we're, we're going to crucify you. They didn't do that flip flop thing. Not, not exactly. Not right then. Now, there's more to it. And Jesus, uh, Jesus knew that as well. So this situation that we come across in John chapter 2, you know, driving out these, these money changers and all, uh, making things right in the temple is what he was doing, allowing people to worship God. And some people didn't like that, but a lot of people, they did believe, and they recognized what he was doing and what he was changing. But this whole situation, this whole encounter, it happened among the Jewish people. Well, what about those people who aren't Jews? After all, we're not Jews. So what does this really have to do with us? Well, if you flip over just a couple more chapters in John's gospel, you see that Jesus has uh, this, this teaching to a non-Jewish woman. This is this story that we're going to read a little bit about is uh, his encounter with a woman at a well. Now, she's a Samaritan woman, so she's not Jewish. Um, and the Samaritans... They kind of share some same things in common with the Jewish people, but not exactly. The Samaritans don't like the Jews. The Jews don't really like the Samaritans. So there's a whole lot of reasons as to why Jesus uh, would not have been able to have a good conversation with this woman. However, somehow, I guess by the grace of God, he's able to have a wonderful conversation with this woman. And part of what they say, it gets into this. It's, it's the woman who kind of goes into this area and she has this question. So John 4, verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship, that we must worship, is in Jerusalem. So she brings up this question. Okay, because the Samaritans, they had their own ways of doing things. They said, okay, we worship on this mountain. The Jewish people, they said, no, we got to worship in Jerusalem. Don't you know? we got to go to the temple. This is how we, we worship. So... The Samaritans and the Jews, if, if you don't get anything else about this, this difficulty that they had between them, realize they couldn't even agree where to worship. Okay, they really couldn't agree on a lot of things. So she's got this question. She realizes Jesus is right there. He's a prophet. He's something special. Is he going to be able to answer this question? Where is the right place to worship? She wants to know. She's got to know. And Jesus gives her a very interesting answer. Verses 23 and 24, we read this about Jesus' response. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So when Jesus goes to someone who's not a Jew, and whenever he talks about where's the right place to worship, you know, is it the temple? Is it some mountain? And he says, look, things are changing. In fact, things already had changed at that point. And he's just trying to share this news and and let people know it's different. There's going to be a time whenever it doesn't really matter where you worship. The location is not going to be important. What is important is, are you you going to fit this description that's given here? And I I put it in bold, and I know that it it almost kind of defeats the purpose because almost half the text is in bold and underlined here, but yet there's a reason for that. There's a reason that Jesus says the same thing in verse 23 that he does in verse 24. In verse 23, he talks about the true worshipers. Wouldn't we all like to be called the true worshiper of God? Yeah, I think that's, that, that's what the Samaritan woman wanted as well. So if you want to be a true worshiper, what is your worship going to look like? Well, you're going to worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And then in verse 24, Jesus says pretty much the same thing. He says, look, the Father's worshipers, they must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And this is where the focus is. You, you know that in some ways you might look at this and you might wonder, and you know, you, you might have the same question. Okay, so Jesus, that's a great answer, but but is it okay to worship on that mountain or is it or do you have to go to Jerusalem? You know, that's kind of missing the point. You see, his his whole thing is that question, while it was an important question to her, she was looking in the wrong area. Because the reality of it is, it didn't matter so much about that mountain. It didn't matter so much about Jerusalem, about going there to worship. No, no, no. If you're going to be a true worshiper, what does matter? And what still matters is that we worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. That's what he gives them as as this statement about that's how a worshiper of God is, is going to do. That's what they're going to do. That's what you all need to do. So with these couple encounters, and there's more, of course, that Jesus uh, has with other people. But in these two different encounters with the temple, we see that there is a new temple today. It's no longer the same one that it has been. The temple that Jesus spoke about was his own body. It's no longer some physical building, but now it's this, this human body that Jesus is in. And then he also, kind of also a, uh, a statement that Paul will make is, is he calls us as Christians. He says, you know, we're, we're the temple. We're the place that God dwells. Uh, Temple is still important today. Temples are still important today. However, what that means today is very different than what it meant whenever Jesus first set foot on this earth. See, God still dwells among us now. He must. It's, It's so important. But it's not in that physical temple. This new temple, it is Jesus. And he started this process of all things being made new. And there's a whole lot of new things. You know, many things that we don't even think about as new because, well, that's kind of how it's always been for us growing up. We're 2,000 years, we got 2,000 years on these people. So, yeah, these things aren't going to seem as new to us. But during this time, things were different. Things were, were changing at the time of Jesus. And now I think sometimes it's important for us to look back and to recognize how great we do have it today. How wonderful it is that it doesn't matter the location of where we worship, but it matters how we're going to worship. 
if we worship in spirit and in truth. So have you accepted this new way that Jesus has ushered in? You know, this new way of doing everything, this you know, New Testament, New Covenant, we call it a few different things. Have you accepted His way, the way of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ today? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, or if maybe you've gotten off that pathway, guess what? You've got today. You can make things right. 